How was everyone's weekend? Uh, mine was uh, a little boisterous. It's a long story, but my bachelor party before getting married got canceled because of COVID. Um, and turned out I got a surprise makeup uh, bachelor party. So Jeffrey's still hung over this morning. <laughs> I'm fine this morning. <laughs> don't, don't ask me about Sunday uh, or Saturday. My, uh, but my, my pitch is much more of a bass today than it normally is. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. We've got a busy week ahead of us, folks. Former President Donald Trump is expected to appear in court in New York City on Tuesday after being indicted last week. That's likely when we're going to learn the actual charges against him. But presidential indictments aside, this week was already going to be a big week for elections watchers. Voters are headed to the polls on Tuesday, with the most closely watched contests being the Wisconsin Supreme Court and Chicago mayoral races. The race in Wisconsin is largely considered the most consequential of 2023. It's a statewide election in a purple state, with the overall orientation of the court and issues like abortion and gerrymandering hanging in the balance. The Chicago mayoral race will be another test of whether urban politics are shifting to the right, with a clear choice between a teachers' union-backed progressive and police union-backed centrist. And in case you missed it, over the weekend, the pool of 2024 presidential contenders got a little bit bigger. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson is running for the Republican nomination with a pitch that it's time for conservatives to move past Trump. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get to it. Here with me, our senior reporter, Amelia Thompson-DeVoe. Hey, Amelia, how's it going? Good, how are you? You know, doing pretty well. Slow Monday, but we got lots to cover nonetheless. Also here with us is senior elections analyst Nathaniel Rakich. Hey, Nathaniel. Hey, Galen. And also with us is senior elections analyst Jeffrey Skelly. Hey, Jeffrey. Hey, Galen. So let's begin with Trump's indictment. Since it became public last week, pollsters have been out in the field trying to gauge how Americans are reacting. Nathaniel, kick us off. What have we learned? Well, we haven't learned a whole lot. We've had a couple of polls that have come out since the indictment, and they largely confirm what we, what the polls kind of before the indictment that asked, like, you know, what would you think um, said? So, for example, ABC News and Ipsos came out with a poll. Um, they found that, generally speaking, Americans are in favor of the indictment, although a fair number uh, aren't sure. Um, so the exact numbers are 45% think that Trump should have been charged with a crime in this case, whereas 32 percent think he shouldn't have, and 23 percent said they don't know. Um, that said, a plurality of Americans do think that the charges against Trump are politically motivated. That's 47 percent. Um, and that is kind of a, I'm not sure it's quite a paradox, but it's a little bit of a, you know, internal, uh, you know, push and pull that, that Americans are feeling that was also reflected in some polls from before the indictment. Yeah, so I think there is some thought that uh, Trump could be gaining, uh, at least in the sense of uh, Republican presidential primary polls against his likely challenger, Ron DeSantis. You know, there's at least one survey out from uh, YouGov Yahoo News that that showed Trump having gained over DeSantis uh, compared to where he was before. I do think, as always, it's important to sort of keep the larger trends in mind with this, which is that Trump had already been improving in his position vis-a-vis DeSantis and, you know, whether you're talking about head to head against DeSantis or you're talking about larger field, you know, including like DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, you know, 
likely are already in the race, major contenders. Trump, Trump has been doing this, an upward trajectory uh, in the polls uh, over the last couple of months. So, you know, for me, that makes it harder to know how much the indictment's actually playing into that um, or if it's just kind of a continuation of the trends. And, and obviously it's going to take seeing some, some further polling to know that or to get a better idea about that. I think the interesting thing in some of these polls anyway is just that there's a fair amount of uncertainty. And so I think there is room for some of these opinions to potentially change when we do actually get the charges. So so one question in a CNN SSRS poll um, that was also conducted after the news of the indictment broke found that Americans are pretty split on whether the decision to indict Trump strengthens U.S. democracy. 31% agreed with that. Um, An identical share say it weakens democracy, and roughly a quarter say it has no effect on democracy, and 15% are unsure. So it'll be interesting to see if those numbers shift as the process continues and we actually learn what the charges are and we sort of see Trump starting to respond. Another question in that poll that I thought was interesting was, um, you know, you you can ask about whether people approve of the indictment or you can ask about what they actually think about the underlying behavior. And in the poll, it was also pretty split on that. Um, 37% of Americans thought that Trump's payments to Daniels were illegal. 33% they were said they were unethical, but not illegal. Only 10% said they weren't wrong at all, and 20% don't know. Um, So that is another interesting question that I think is telegraphing quite a bit of uncertainty and also just this general sense that um, there isn't a consensus yet about how serious the charges are. And of course, we actually don't know what they are. So that's completely a completely fair thing for people to be uncertain about. Um, But that's something where I, you know, I think there is some potential for opinion to move once we learn what the charges actually are and the wheels of the legal process start moving. Yeah, I think that's an important point. We're going to learn what the charges are soon enough, and we will be back on this podcast shortly after we find that out. So I really don't want to spend too much time on this today because we're in that weird in-between point where, yes, Trump has been indicted, but we don't yet know. We're going to know soon enough. It seems like public opinion outside of the Republican primary polling that you mentioned from Yahoo News has been pretty stable. Honestly, that did kind of surprise me the degree to which Trump's support in the Republican primary, you know, potential Republican primary, ticked up. It was up to 57% of folks supporting Trump over DeSantis, DeSantis down to 31%. And that's after they had been like roughly even in the mid 40s for months. So I think we do want to keep watching that. But as I mentioned, we're going to be back here soon enough. So let's move on to this weekend's other news, which is that former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson got into the Republican primary. Now, I don't think, looking at the headlines throughout the weekend, his announcement didn't really seem to break through all of the other news that's happening at the moment, but we do like to focus on elections here at 538, and so we are going to take some dedicated time. He said that he's going to make a more formal announcement at the end of April, so maybe we'll talk more about it then as well. But just at first blush, like, what is Asa Hutchinson's pitch to Republican voters? And are they, you know, picking up what he's putting down, Jeffrey? I think Asa Hutchinson is looking to be like a a sort of more traditional Republican conservative uh, in the race. He wants to have the party move forward, um, sort of past Trump. Um, And perhaps that gets something, it gets back to sort of uh, Hutchinson's background. Um, He's 
been a Republican Party sort of stalwart for a long time. Um, he's from Ar- obviously he's from Arkansas. Uh, Arkansas used to be kind of this this moderate conservative blue leaning state, you know, Democratic leaning state. So Hutchinson's political career starts out at a time when Democrats are dominant in Arkansas, and he he ran statewide a couple times and lost uh, in like the eighties and early nineties. He got elected to Congress uh, to the U.S. House. Um, because his brother actually won a U.S. Senate seat in 1996. Um, Hutchinson then later gets appointed to the Bush administration. So he's connected there. He was in the Bush administration as head of the the Drug Enforcement Agency. Um, So, you know, that's sort of all the background. And then he gets elected governor in 2014 uh, in Arkansas. So, you know, he's got this long career. Um, He's, I think, 71 or 72. And so you can sort of see how he would maybe connect to a Maybe at this point, what seems like sort of a, an older version of what we knew the Republican Party to be, the pre-Trump Republican Party. Uh, and I don't think it's a coincidence uh, at the same time that in the handful of polls that he's been included in, he's either at about zero or one percent. And I think that probably reflects uh, how appealing that could be. Obviously, he's not that well known, so that's going to play a factor in it, too. But, I, you know, asking where the path is for someone like Asa Hutchinson is to to really, really try hard, because <laughs> I don't think there is one. <laughs> okay, so given that, Amelia, what's the point of running at all? I mean, why do any of these long-shot candidates run? They think what they're running on is important, wants to get his name out there. I think he genuinely is alarmed by the idea of Trump continuing to be the Republican Party standard bearer and feels like he is the answer um, for reasons that are a little bit more opaque to me. I mean, the other thing about him is that even though he does have this long history in the Republican Party, he broke with his conservative legislature. I mean, the Arkansas legislature recently has gotten very, very conservative. And he had, for example, a high-profile veto of a ban on gender-affirming care for transgender youth back in 2021. That was one of the first of these bans that we're seeing pass in state legislatures across the country this year. Um, The legislature ended up overriding his veto. But it's not just that he's not in favor of Trump and willing to rebuke Trump and refute Trump, there are are also situations where he has broken with his party on social issues where there is quite a bit of cohesion within the party right now. So I think that is a potential strike against him as well in the Republican primary. The the veto is actually very interesting because Arkansas is, is one of a handful of states where all you need to override a governor's veto is a majority in the legislature. It's not like, you know, two thirds or something or three fifths. It's just a simple majority. And so with the Arkansas, the Republicans overwhelming majorities in the state legislature there, you know, Hutchinson knew that he was going to get overridden. Like it was a, it was a guarantee, right? But he still vetoed it. So I think it's, it, it becomes perhaps even more interesting and symbolic in that way because it was, you know, just a foregone conclusion that he was going to be overridden. Yeah. And I think he was, he also signed a very strict, trigger law um, that would ban abortion in um, if Roe versus Wade was overturned in 2019. Um, back then, I think the overturning of Roe versus Wade was feeling a lot more hypothetical to people in state legislatures. And later, he kind of expressed some regret um, and was saying that maybe he you know, would have thought differently about the bill if he had known that it would actually become law. So, you know, that is an example of a place where he, he did do what 
you know, his more conservative legislature was leading on. Um, but then he kind of tried to walk it back later. Yeah, I mean, Hutchinson went so far as to say that Trump should withdraw from the Republican primary in announcing his bid for president. Of course, uh, Trump will not be listening to Asa Hutchinson in making decisions about how to campaign going forward. But for folks like Hutchinson, who seem like their priority is for Trump to not win the Republican primary, what is the best move? Like, because he's decided to run for president instead of, say, you know, start working on behalf of the DeSantis campaign. Like, what is the tactic there? Is he just saying, like, this is one other position from which I can lob attacks at Trump and eventually get behind whoever the alternative is? If that is the assessment, is that a good assessment? Nathaniel, what do you think? There is a distinction between candidates who want to stop Trump and candidates who want to stop Trumpism. Um, and I actually think that that Asa Hutchinson doesn't really care about Trump himself. I don't think I describe him as anti-Trump. He voted for Trump twice, um, but he's just like more like, you know, kind of himself, like a traditional conservative, like laid back. Like he didn't seem to have, he wasn't in Adam Kinzinger or Liz Cheney. He didn't seem to have a ton of urgency, um, at least until like January 6th, with which he, you know, did kind of call out Trump on, he didn't seem to have to have a lot of urgency about, um, you know, stopping Trump, um, you know, before that. Um, but he, he does seem like he doesn't want Trumpism to take over. So I think for somebody like Asa Hutchinson, you know, endorsing DeSantis is kind of pointless because DeSantis is just bringing Trumpism without Trump, um, whereas Hutchinson truly wants a different, like, direction for the Republican Party. Wait, wait, wait. He was okay with Donald Trump until January 6th. So that would suggest that he's basically okay with Trumpism. But if the breaking point was January 6th, then you're like maybe not okay with the like crazier anti-democratic stuff. So then wouldn't DeSantis still fit that bill? Yeah, maybe. I guess it's interesting that you would interpret it that way because I would kind of interpret it the opposite. Um, but uh, no, I mean, like, you know, as, as you know, Jeffrey and, and Amelia mentioned, some of his kind of governing decisions you know, are, are to, to kind of put it mildly, decisions that Ron DeSantis, if he were governor of Arkansas, would not have made. Um, and mm -hmm. so I think that the that kind of like strong conservative tendency. Um, you know, Hutchinson is a guy who was conservative in the 90s and 2000s, but wouldn't be considered, you know, like conservative or conservative Republican today, right? And that's kind of what he, you know, kind of what it represents. And, you know, quite frankly, I don't think he is going to be siphoning a lot of votes from anybody. Um, you know, it doesn't really matter if these guys kind of jump in. It doesn't hurt, you know, like, especially at this point when no votes are being cast, like, is Asa Hutchinson still going to be active candidate for president in January or February when Iowa and New Hampshire are voting, uh, you know, maybe not. Um, and, and in that case, you know, if, if he, he just wants to get up on a debate stage and, and kind of make the case for, you know, as, as, you know, probably doomed as that case is, um, if he wants to make a case for that kind of George W. Bush style of conservative Republicanism, um, you know, go crazy. I mean, one area where he has actively split from DeSantis is on Ukraine and what the U.S.'s interest is in the Russia-Ukraine war. DeSantis obviously has said that the U.S. does not have an interest, and um, Hutchinson explicitly said that he thinks that's wrong. So I think you're right, Nathaniel, that he is seeing himself as someone who is bringing forward this kind of older vision of 
conservatism. And um, yeah, you know, maybe for him, it just is about getting on a debate stage and airing his ideas and trying to make Trump and DeSantis and anyone else who represents this newer, Trumpier version of republicanism answer for that. Yeah, right. Because one of the things you can do as a candidate on a debate stage or just in the press in general is you can potentially move the posts of where like moderation is. So if only Trump and DeSantis are running, then moderation has to be somewhere between those two. But if like Nikki Haley and Asa Hutchinson are also running, then they can compare their ideas against Trump and DeSantis would potentially have to like position himself considering that Haley and Hutchinson are also on the debate stage, you know, making their own arguments. So that's just like one potential way that candidates who ultimately have no shot at winning can change the course of a primary potentially. But I think we'll just have to wait and see how this plays out for now. Definitely looks like Nathaniel, your idea that this ultimately doesn't matter that much is reflected in the amount of news coverage of Hutchinson's announcement. He he picked not the greatest weekend to leak that or to sort of <laughs> sort of. I mean, make isn't that it clear. like the perfect weekend though? It's like his pitch is don't elect Trump, and Trump just got yeah. indicted. So you'd think that it would be great okay. timing for him. That, that's fair. That's fair. But I mean, not to pile on Asa, but I guess it's a it's a double edged sword in the sense that yeah, he can go on the Sunday shows and be like, we shouldn't elect the person who just got indicted, but. It also means that his news itself is going to be stepped on in a major way. So, you know, we will see uh, what happens next. I have a feeling that, you know, having been doing this for seven and a half years, the Trump show is about to blot out the sun. But, uh, you know, prove me wrong. <laughs> Let's move on and talk a little bit about the elections on Tuesday in Wisconsin and Chicago. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. The Wisconsin Supreme Court is currently divided 4-3 with conservatives in the majority. But with the retirement of one of the conservative justices, Tuesday's election between conservative Dan Kelly and liberal Janet Protasiewicz will determine the orientation of the court going forward. The race has been the most expensive state Supreme Court race in American history. Amelia and Jeff, you wrote about this for the site. This race is technically nonpartisan, but in practice has been, you know, anything but. It's been very partisan. How have Kelly and Protasiewicz positioned themselves on the issues, Amelia? Protasiewicz, I think, has made it very clear where she stands on a number of key issues that will, you know, be very relevant if 
liberals are able to take control of the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And those two major issues are abortion and redistricting. She has not said how she would rule in an ongoing lawsuit over Wisconsin's 19th century abortion ban, which has been in effect since last summer, has made it effectively impossible to get an abortion in Wisconsin, because this is one of these really old bans that just basically says no abortion, in any circumstances, unless the pregnant person is about to die. Um, That is not popular in Wisconsin. And so she has basically said that she's she's endorsed by a bunch of pro-choice groups, that she supports abortion rights. Um, So it's pretty clear where she lands on that. Um, And then the other issue is redistricting and the fate of Wisconsin's um, congressional district and legislative maps, both of which are quite friendly to Republicans and have already gone through a round of litigation. But that could be reopened if the uh, liberals had control of the court. And she has said basically that she thinks that the maps are not fair. Kelly, interestingly, while I think it is it is very easy to guess at his position on abortion, has been trying to basically argue that his views on abortion don't matter. So, you know, he's done legal work for anti-abortion groups in the state. Um, he's very conservative, but he has been, you know, he's he not been full-throated in his support for the 19th century abortion ban. And that makes a lot of sense because it's, you know, it's like less than 10% of Wisconsinites think that abortion should be illegal in all cases. It's really not a popular position. Um, So those have been the major issues where the candidates have been distinguished and in the case of Protosiewicz, actively distinguishing themselves. Have there been any other prominent issues in this election? I mean, you know, should we kind of think of this election as a referendum on abortion in the way that we were thinking about some of the special elections that took place last year after the Dobbs decision came down? I tend to think it's a bit of a continuation of what we saw in the 2022 midterms. Um, You have Kelly and Kelly's allies running ads, uh, essentially saying Protasiewicz is uh, soft on crime. She mm, gave out too mm. too lenient of sentencing uh, as a judge in Milwaukee County, um, whereas Protasiewicz is running a lot of ads uh, talking about um, how she's impartial and that she's in favor of abortion rights. Um, so these are sort of the, the the dynamics, and obviously we saw a lot of that in 2022. Um, so it's it seems like it's a bit of a continuation of that. And you know, obviously in the 2022 midterms, I'd say Democrats feel like. They got a bit of a win. If, you, if you're saying that those were sort of core sort of competing issues that mm-hmm. given the results, especially on the Senate side, that uh, Democrats came out a, a bit better uh, for it. And I guess we will see if that if there is a continuation of that um, in this race as well. Yeah, I mean, we do have very little data, but from whatever tea leaves we do have, does it look like not only the issues, but the outcome will be a continuation of 2022? I would say that it's it's we to be clear we have basically no polling. The only survey that we've seen that that at least as of this weekend uh, that had popped out in public uh, was actually uh, from a Republican pollster sponsored by uh, one of the leading su- outside supporters uh, for Kelly. Um, but the poll still had Protasiewicz ahead by a couple points. Um, so it's you know we don't have much to go on for the polling perspective. But Protasiewicz has greatly outraised Kelly. 
she and her allies have outspent Kelly and his allies in terms of advertising. Um, and combined, the liberals, the, the liberal candidates in the primary led, uh, I think it was 54 to 46 or 53 to 47. I don't remember off the top mm-hmm. of my head now uh, in the first round in terms of their combined percentage um, versus Kelly and the other conservative candidate who was on the ballot, the primary. So I think liberals feel like they probably have uh, an edge headed into it. Um, but, you know, there are a couple refer- there's a, a couple constitutional amendments on the ballot and a non-binding referendum that basically asks whether people who apply for like welfare benefits should have to uh, work um, and it's essentially it, you can and and there's been criticism that conservatives in the Wisconsin legislature basically wanted something like that on the ballot to try to gin up Republican turnout. And so, you know, it, it's it's I, we just don't have a ton to go on to say like with much certainty about where the race is going. But I think there are reasons to think the pro to say which uh, should be viewed as a favorite. But how much of a favorite is is harder to say. I mean, the fundraising differential was something that we did see in some key races in the 2022 midterms where the abortion rights side just blew the other side out of the water in terms of fundraising. So, you know, obviously that's not determinative this time around, but it's interesting to see that same pattern repeating itself going into tomorrow's election. Yeah, I mentioned at the top of the show that this is the most expensive state Supreme Court race in American history. I feel like We've seen a lot of those records broken in recent years just because the amount of money going into even just state-level politics has been somewhat astronomical. In this case, we're talking about tens of millions of dollars. Where's all that money coming from? So for Proto Sewich, um, she's she's outraised Kelly uh, in terms of their individual campaigns uh, very significantly. It's like I think it was like twelve million to two million. I don't remember. I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head now, but it's 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 a lot. Um, now, about two-thirds of what Protosewicz had raised sort of in the month and a half leading up to this um, actually came from the, the Wisconsin Democratic Party. And where the Wisconsin Democratic Party was getting that money um, included a, a lot of well-known uh, funders on the liberal side of the aisle. So uh, George Soros, for example, I think gave a million. J.B. Pritzker, the billionaire governor of Illinois, gave a million dollars to the Wisconsin Democratic Party that was then given to Protosewicz. Um, by the way, again, to your point, nonpartisan race, but both political parties are very clearly backing their their candidates because on the Republican side, so Richard Uline is a very well-known uh, billionaire uh, mega donor on the Republican side, a lot of conservative causes. Well, his wife gave a half a million dollars to the Republican Party that was then sent over to Dan Kelly's campaign. So you can see like these partisan connections. But for Kelly, most of the spending has actually been from allies, not through his campaign. Um, uh, so Uline and some others have have spent their their through PACs um, have spent a lot of money on ads. Um, and one of the actually the, the little wrinkles in this though is that campaigns, like individual campaigns, get a much better rate when they purchase ad time. Um, it's much cheaper for them than from outside groups. So Protosewich and her allies have not only outspent Kelly, but the fact that most of the spending has been through Protosewich's campaign has actually given them like very much, you can't just compare like the dollar amounts to understand sort of the degree to which uh, like uh, the, the points buying in terms of the number of television advertisements are much greater on Protosewich's side because she gets those cheaper rates or she's been able to take advantage of those cheaper rates at a much to a much greater degree. You know, this being a somewhat high profile election, considering that this is an off year, means that the results may get a decent amount of attention, especially because it's in a purple state. And I'm curious, like, before we get those results and narratives start forming, given the electorate that we expect in this kind of 
an election, you know, off-year state Supreme Court election, should we take the results to indicate something about the trends of Wisconsin politics? Or is this a kind of like one-off, this is unique, don't build it into your like narrative model of what could happen in 2024? In some ways, this is similar to a special election. And we've talked on the show before about how special elections can be predictive of the next election cycle, but only when you look at them in aggregate and average them over time. You know, this is a, a big election. It's statewide. Um, but I would always be hesitant about drawing conclusions from any one election. Um, this is also a nonpartisan election. Technically, you know, I think that 95% of Wisconsinites will know which party the the candidates are affiliated with, but it's not going to be on the ballot, which I think makes it a little dicier to to kind of use as a straight like, oh, Democrats overperformed by this and, you know, therefore Biden's going to win re-election. What's turnout going to be like a third of eligible voters higher? What are we thinking here? Probably about a third, right, Jeffrey? What do you think? Yeah, so actually what's interesting is the primary had the highest turnout of eligible voters of any recent uh, spring primary, as they call it uh, in Wisconsin, a February primary election with 22% of the voting eligible population. Um, so again, yeah, to put that in context, you know, you had 70% or more of the voting eligible population vote in 2016 and 2020 in the presidential election uh, in November. So you're talking about a much smaller part of the electorate. Now in the April general, it's been, it's tended to be in the 30s. Um, but when it's corresponded with the presidential primary, because in you know presidential years, if it happened in even year, the judicial election would happen at the same time as the presidential primary in April in Wisconsin. Obviously, that would drive more turnout. Um, but even then, it's it's only in recent times, only in 2016, when both parties had competitive presidential primaries going on, did it eclipse 40 percent of the voting eligible population. So my number has sort of been in my head of like 35, 36, because that's actually what we've seen sort of the highest otherwise. Um, but it does seem like there's, you know, a lot of engagement, all this spending. And you'd have to think that with all the spending and the view of the race as being competitive, that like that, those factors would tend to drive higher turnout. Um, so in the grand scheme of like judicial elections in Wisconsin, it would presumably be on the higher side. But if you're thinking about like presidential elections, you know, you're talking maybe half, <laughs> it may be a little more than half uh, if it's a really high turnout. I mean, I think the way I'm thinking about this in terms of abortion specifically is that this is just kind of a signal of how much the issue has persisted as a real motivator among significant key democratic blocks. Um, and that's really important because I think one of the big lessons that we we should take from the 2022 midterms is that, you know, abortion wasn't rising to the top of Democratic Democrats' priority lists everywhere, but in places where there were really serious bans in play, where people were aware that abortion access was very seriously restricted, this was a really big motivator for Democrats, um, and especially um, for some subgroups of Democrats. And so one of the big questions I've had is, you know, okay, we're now six months 
past six months, five months. I don't know. Time is time is too much for me. Um, we're some amount of time past the 2022 midterms. Um, and, um, you know, how much are Democrats really thinking about this? Um, people have kind of had more time to get settled into a post-Dobbs reality. Are they just accepting that this is the way things are on abortion now? Or are there states where you know, this could continue to be a significant motivating issue um, going into 2024. And that's especially relevant because there are states like Arizona where full abortion bans are still making their way through the courts. So while a lot of the full bans are going to, you know, be in states like Arkansas, where like I don't, you know, Democrats may be mad and motivated, but I don't think it's going to make a big difference in 2024. There are some states where this could be a big deal. You know, Florida, um, another example, they're poised to pass a six-week ban. So I think that's the way I would think about it. And I would be looking at, you know, turnout, and margins, um, again, just as a sign of how much do Democrats still care about this? Are they willing, you know, are they tuned in enough that they're going to turn out for this election that, you know, at another time, I think would have been a very, very sleepy election that we would never be talking about on the podcast. Yeah, well, you know, I don't know. Never say never. We, uh, we, uh, you know, we like our elections here. We've gotten pretty <laughs> we dirty do. in the we past. We do, but we I, do, we do. But point you know, absolutely we would taken. not be talking about it for like you know twenty minutes. <laughs> and we also probably wouldn't be live blogging, which I mm-hmm. should say we are going to be live blogging tomorrow night. We're actually going to start in the afternoon with our eyes trained on the expected unsealing of the indictment against Trump. So, folks. Please follow along with us. Go to 538.com. We're going to be talking about Trump throughout the day. I'm actually going to be downtown at the courthouse talking with people on the street. Um, We'll see, you know, like, hey, if you were a juror, uh, how impartial could you be in this case? (laughs) Um, See what New Yorkers have to say about that. And then as we move along into the evening, we're going to train our focus on the Wisconsin Supreme Court and Chicago mayoral elections. You're going to have lots of 538 live blogging to follow tomorrow evening. Tuesday evening, I should say, if you're listening to this on Tuesday. And then I'll also say we're going to have a podcast on Wednesday morning reacting to both the unsealing of the indictment and the results in the election. I know, folks, that you may have wanted an emergency podcast Tuesday afternoon once the indictment is unsealed, but we are going to be busy live blogging the elections, so you'll just have to hold tight. This is what happens when there's too much news at one time. Let's move on, though, and talk about the Chicago mayoral race before we go. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, as folks know if you've been listening to this podcast, lost her re-election bid in the first round of voting in February. And now the two top vote-getters are facing off to become the next mayor. They are Brandon Johnson, a progressive who's backed by the teachers' union, and Paul Vallis, a centrist backed by the police union. I think folks can probably guess that public safety and criminal justice, you know, like in other cities, has been a hot topic in this election. Nathaniel, how has that debate played out, um, you know, in the months leading up till now? Well, basically, the the debate on public safety has been playing out. That's, I think, a, a strong point for Paul Vallis, who is the more conservative candidate. He is the pro-police candidate, and the police are pro-him. He's been endorsed by the, um, the local police union, which is a potent force in politics in Chicago. And he has been attacking uh, his opponent, Brandon Johnson, uh, for his passport uh, for uh, essentially defunding the police. Um, you know, he has said that it was, uh, you know, not just a slogan, but a real political goal. Uh, 
Johnson has been coming back from from that, really kind of backpedaling on on what he said back in in 2020 on that issue. But you know, it is uh, something that uh, that has come back to to haunt him. On the flip side, you have uh, kind of Johnson. He's also kind of talking about crime, but in a way that's talking about kind of funding some of the the more root causes of crime. He's also talked about increasing taxes on on the wealthy to pay for a whole host of social services, um, including things for education. Education has been another big issue. Both of these candidates' um, backgrounds have been in education. So Vallis mm-hmm. was the CEO of Chicago Public Schools and also in Philadelphia. He's been a big supporter of charter schools in the past. So he also takes a kind of a more moderate position on that. Whereas Johnson... Um, was an organizer for the teachers union. Um, and was an actual teacher at one point. Right, right. He's a teacher himself uh, and has been endorsed by the teachers union, which is another uh, powerful uh, force in Chicago politics. Um, so so it really is a, you know, a very interesting, um, very stark ideological contrast. I would say probably the most conservative and the most progressive candidate emerged from the primary um, in this regard. And, and also, you know, as with any kind of urban politics, race is a dimension of Vallis is white, uh, Johnson is black. And I suspect that you'll see that uh, show up in the voting patterns as well. Yeah, you said, you know, the most conservative and most progressive options emerged from that primary, you know, as a result of what kind of voting patterns, like, could we see who got what support where in Chicago? I know that, as you did with New York and Los Angeles, you broke down Chicago by sort of political neighborhood. Where do Vallis and Johnson get their backings from, you know, beyond the unions, but when it comes to the actual voters? Yeah, so um, I hope folks can uh, on Tuesday morning go to 538.com and check out my my article about the the four political neighborhoods of Chicago. Um, you know, I always have fun digging into kind of the the local voting patterns. We went ward by ward. Basically, I think you know, for I assume most people who are listening to this podcast aren't going to know you know what the neighborhoods in Chicago are like. So I'll, I'll kind of make broader generalizations about the voting blocks. Um, so in general, you know, I think that Johnson support Johnson kind of surged late in the primary. Um, a lot of like Chicago's progressives who tend to live on like the north side, um, you know, tend to be kind of, you know, younger, uh, white, you know, progressive voters. Um, they voted for Lori Lightfoot in 2019, um, but she really disappointed them and they were kind of fishing around for another candidate um, and and seemed like they f- they settled on Johnson in, uh, in the first round. He just kind of narrowly beat Lightfoot there, but uh, he did win a lot of those precincts in kind of the most progressive areas. Uh, Chicago's had like many cities kind of a, a burgeoning um, DSA, Democratic Socialists of America movement. Um, I've seen some socialist members get elected to the um, the city council, and a lot of those same wards uh, ended up voting for Johnson. Um, Vallis, on the other hand, is supported um, by you know the conservatives who do exist in, in Chicago. Um, you generally see kind of a pocket of like pro business Democrats in like downtown and the areas immediately north of of that. Um, but then you also have a fair amount of um, what are kind of have traditionally being called kind of like quote unquote white ethnic voters. So, you know, these are working class areas like, you know, traditionally uh, Irish American and Polish American areas of Chicago that are a little bit further flung in like the Northwest and Southwest quadrants. And those are really some of like Vallis's um, base um, given his, his focus on public safety, especially. Um, and then the the kind of the other two voting, big voting blocks in Chicago are uh, essentially black voters and Hispanic voters. In the, the first round, black voters tended to go for Lightfoot and Hispanic voters tended to go for Representative Chuy Garcia, who was kind of the fourth main candidate in the race. So they are in large part up for grabs. And I think that is going to be a big determination of who wins the runoff is that, you know, who um, voters of color end up opting for. Yeah. I mean, is it 
clear at this point? Do we have any more polling than in the Wisconsin Supreme Court race? Yeah, we've had a lot of polling in Chicago, actually, like far more polling in Chicago than in Wisconsin, which has actually shocked me, considering that I would expect that Wisconsin would be more interesting to a national audience. Uh, And also, it's a lot easier to poll a state that everybody polls every two years rather than a a municipal election. Um, But uh, but yeah, um, we have seen um, polls that generally um, put Vallis. uh, Wait, wait, I'm sorry. Nathaniel, did you just say that it's easy to poll Wisconsin? Because I'm pretty sure uh, (laughs) it has like the biggest errors back to back in 2016 and that 2020. That is fair. That's a good point. I guess that could be scaring people off. Um, but like in a, like generally speaking, the smaller the jurisdiction, the harder yeah, it is yeah, to yeah. poll. And like Chicago, I guess Chicago is a, is a very large city. It's basically, you know, it's almost the size of Kansas. Um, but this is like basically it's, it's a primary, you know, both Vallis and, and Johnson are Democrats. Um, and so, um, you know, it's always hard to, you know, it, like voters yeah. are more fluid in primaries. So I don't know if I were a pollster, I would rather take my reputation on Wisconsin. Um, but anyway, that was a tangent. Um, in the polls of the Chicago mayor's race that we have seen, Vallis has tended to be a few points ahead of Johnson, generally within the margin of error, though. And when you look into those crosstabs, it does look like Johnson is generally leading among black voters. Uh, and again, Johnson himself is black. Um, whereas Hispanic voters are generally seem to, to be leaning toward Vallis. Um, so, you know, again, kind of, you know, perhaps reflecting the fact that that um, demographic has, has shifted right um, in the last couple of years. Um, so it could be close. There are, though, you know, more black voters uh, in Chicago than there are Hispanic voters. Um, and of course, the margins within kind of their base are going to matter. Like in the mm-hmm. first round, um, Vallis was like running up shocking numbers among kind of these like working class areas. He was winning like 60 percent of the vote, whereas Johnson tended to just be kind of eking out the areas, even in like progressive places. But also he was facing more competition, right? Because like, you know, like Chewy Garcia kind of identifies as progressive. So he was maybe siphoning off some of that vote, maybe still similar light foot vote. So um, it's it's hard to know. I, you know, I, obviously, like just looking at the top lines again, I think you'd have to say that this race leans toward Vallis, um, but mm-hmm. it is also competitive. Yeah. And to Nathaniel's point, uh, we should mention Garcia endorsed Johnson. Um, so you do see sort of the progressives lining up behind Johnson. Um, and thinking about sort of like race and ethnicity, the overall population of Chicago um, is like a third white and then basically like 30% black and 30% Latino. But there is definitely a larger voting age population that is white and then black and then Latinos in third. So I, this is where like the margins, I think, will be very important. It's like how much can Johnson consolidate voters, especially in the south side of Chicago, which is traditionally where there's, I mean, we should mention also Chicago is one of the most segregated cities in the country. Um, and that you see this very much in the voting patterns too. And so if if Johnson is able to run up really large margins in Southside, um, that could that could give him, a, and keep it close among Latinos, that could give him a path. At the same time, if Vallis is keeping Johnson's margins down more in Southside and and winning some of the, the heavily Latino parts, you know, that would be a sign that he's, he's probably on his way to victory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, on the flip side for Vallis, you know, he has been battling allegations that he's not really a Democrat. You know, that's that's not going to play well in Chicago. But he was recently endorsed by Democratic Senator Dick Durbin. Um, so he does also have some kind of major endorsements behind him that have come in recently. And, you know, Galen, you were you were asking about the imp- most important issues um, looking in the crosstabs of that Northwestern poll that um, 
Nathaniel was mentioning, um, even though education has also been an issue, it seems like for voters, this is really revolving around the issue of crime. Um, About 50 or exactly 50 percent of registered voters said it was an important issue. Um, And and one really interesting difference, though, was that 80 percent of registered voters over 65 years old said that reducing crime was an important issue compared to 31 percent of 18 to 29 year olds. So, you know, that's a pretty huge age gap and it'll be interesting to see, you know, where where that motivates people. Does it are, you know, if um, the kind of young progressive folks in the north side of Chicago are less motivated by crime, you know, are they still very motivated to turn out for Johnson? If kind of older people are really caring about crime, who do they turn out for? Who do they vote for? Um, you know, in certain parts of the city, it would seem like Vallis is getting a lot of his support from from some of those people. So it'll be interesting to see how all of that breaks down. Yeah, and you know, we talked about ad spending and, and spending overall in the Wisconsin Supreme Court race, but here in, in the Chicago mayoral race, um, you also see uh, Vallis with uh, a pretty significant advantage over Johnson. Um, between Vallis and his allies uh, at Impact uh, came out at uh, the end of last week with a report that said that Vallis and his allies had spent twice as much as Johnson uh, on on advertising across TV, internet, other things. Um, so that you know that sort of edge uh, could could be very impactful, especially since we're you know already seeing we have other signs that Vallis you know may have a slight edge to begin with. Um, and the sort of ads that they were running, you know, uh, Vallis um, has definitely run a lot of ads uh, talking about uh, Johnson having said that he wanted to defund the police. That's shown up a lot. And that Vallis talking about how he's going to, you know, fight crime in, in, in Chicago and, and, you know, really prioritize public safety, you know, those kinds of words. Um, and he's talked a lot about his endorsements because he's trying to fight back this idea that he um, is is not sort of a true blue Democrat. Um, there was, there There's various like uh like radio recordings of him talking back in the day where where he has made statements that were basically used to say that he maybe he was like a little more conservative or he wasn't that much of a democrat or you know and and the Johnson campaign and Lori Lightfoot in like the primary and other Democrats have tried to use that to attack Vallis for not being uh you know basically a a, a real democrat and so Vallis's advertising has also been definitely trying to uh fight back against that idea um by talking about all of his endorsements um, from various Democrats. So you see, uh, and also reaffirming that he is in favor of abortion because there was, uh, especially in the primary attacks on him saying that he wasn't in favor of abortion rights. And obviously we know how salient that issue is right now among Democrats in Chicago. Um, while there will be Republicans voting in this election, um, Chicago is, you know, extremely democratic. Uh, so, you know, that, that's going to be an issue that if, if he, if they could have made a case that Vallis was really anti-abortion, that would have really been, would have been really problematic for him. Yeah. I mean, to wrap up on a similar question that I asked of the race in Wisconsin, we've seen now several big cities with this kind of a lineup between a progressive and a more moderate or more conservative Democrat. And in New York, we saw the more moderate candidate win, Eric Adams. In Los Angeles, we saw the more progressive, although still pretty mainstream Democrat, Karen Bass, win there. Once again, before the narrative gets baked in and we have the actual results, how much should we think of this race as emblematic of the direction of American cities overall? 
Yeah, I think it's harder with cities because they are so idiosyncratic. Different cities are different from each other. There are obviously broad similarities, but you know the the candidates and the kind of political relationships in in cities are kind of notoriously just like complex and specific. And so I don't think people should be drawing any large conclusions from this, other than um, you know just probably urban politics is complicated. It is urban cities just because they vote democratic are not necessarily, um, you know, liberal or progressive. We, we know that, um, you know, just by, you know, even in Los Angeles, the, the conservative candidate Rick Caruso got a decent chunk of the vote. Um, you know, that'll certainly be the case in Chicago as well, regardless of whether Vallis wins or loses. So I think just like the takeaway should be, you know, city politics are complex, um, but not necessarily, you know, drawing any conclusions about, you know, the progressive or, you know, you know, movement is on the rise or, you know, the moderates are striking back or whatever. Well, I mean, when we look at the results in recent national elections, it does look like cities are moving to the right, though, doesn't it? There is some evidence of that um, to some extent, although I mean, we're mainly talking about the 2020 presidential election. And I think it's one of those things where I'd like to see it over, mm-hmm. <laughs> over a few elections. Um, now there is there there is some evidence, you know, for instance, in like Latino, heavily Latino parts of like New York City, uh, for and instance, Asian, I think. and Asian, parts yes, and Asian well. American, um, that uh, Trump gained notably from where he was in 2016, uh, for instance. Um, I do think, especially with Asian Americans, that gets really thorny because Asian American is an extremely broad term. And there are, I mean, you're, you're lumping in people whose, whose origins are like the, you know, Indian subcontinent with people who have Chinese or Japanese background. It's just, it's like, it's a really, really broad thing. And, you know, someone who's a Vietnamese American is may, may have a very different perspective on politics than someone who is uh, Indian American, for instance. Um, so I like, I, I want to be like careful about that, but you definitely saw in 2020, especially I think in Los Angeles too, or in the Los Angeles area and some areas where we know that there are sizable uh, Vietnamese American populations, for instance, that, you know, there was, there was a shift to the right in those places. Um, so there, there is something there. Um, and I guess it's a question of, whether you know trends continue, um, but it does suggest that the that there is the potential for Republicans to have a more diverse coalition. Um, at the same time, though, we shouldn't be like totally overstating that because uh, you know at the end of the day, it's still a very very white party. All right. Well, as I mentioned before, we are going to be live blogging throughout the evening as we get results in. So if you want more specific answers to the questions that we have been asking on today's podcast, tune in to five thirty eight com. But we're going to leave it there. For now, thank you so much, Nathaniel, Amelia, and Jeff. Thanks, Galen. Thank you, Galen. Thank you, Galen. And folks, as usual, a reminder that we have a live show in New York City on April 19th. To get your tickets, go to 538.com slash live show. It's going to be a lot of fun. Hope to see you there. My name is Galen Druk. Anna Rothschild is in the control room, and Tony Chow is on video editing. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts, or even better, tell someone about us. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon.